Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah. Hi, y'all. On today's show, we're going to take some time to talk about the gig economy. This is a segment of the overall economy that we've touched on pretty frequently here on Punching Out, but I thought it might be useful this week to discuss it in big terms. Um, you know, what is it that we mean when we talk about the gig economy? Who are the players? And really, what is the practical effect of having this sector and its rapid growth in our economy and in our broader society? Um, I, I think we can make the case that it's not a positive one especially if you are interested in the outcomes of workers. But we should start by just laying out what separates the gig economy from labor as it had been done for the previous five or six decades. So the main thing that all of these different companies, the gig economy, industries, companies, whatever you want, the main thing that they all rely on is the idea that instead of having employees the way that most traditional firms do, uh, these uh, these companies have disrupted the market, and that's a big phrase that I'm sure we'll get into some more as we go on here. By instead of having employees, they have independent contractors, which amounts to the company is really only there to arrange gigs. They are effectively something like uh, a dispatcher or something like that, where they provide the means for uh, the the independent contractor to in in their telling anyway to connect with customers to do whatever service that may be and the company obviously takes a huge cut of the money made from that and uh, then gets to decide how much those those independent contractors again in their telling get paid what benefits they get what they don't get, which is much more important, and effectively how they get to use or how they get to to work at all, what hours they get to work, uh, where they get uh, whatever it is, their gigs, and uh, everything is left up to this sort of increasingly this black box algorithm that is usually the actual thing that makes each company tick. Uh, because it's it's the actual mechanism by which these people, uh, these workers, get jobs. Yeah, I I think focusing on the sort of algorithm and the technological aspect of this is key because even before these companies came around, you know, we had contractors, we had contracting services. What really separates the Ubers and Lyfts and DoorDashes and all of these other companies from what came before is they have an app. Um, they have like UI design that people seem to think is um, efficient or, you know, helpful. And they have the ability through that app to do this at massive scale. If you're just one person trying to contract out 
work for whatever task you can do. You are limited by your own ability to sort of manage that. But, you know, when you have this big algorithm that can, in theory, do it for you, the only limit is the amount of people who are interested in actually doing that work, right? Yes. And um, that's why most of these companies, honestly, uh, have been able to attract the amount of funding. Because right now, these companies, for the most part, are they are they still all essentially loss leaders? Like, are these still companies that are posting uh, uh, reduced stock prices and whatnot? And um, I was going to save this discussion for later in the episode, but I, I think it's worth talking about now. You're, you're right. They, none of these companies are making profit. Um, there are three articles in The Verge that really helpfully lay this out. You know, They paint a very pretty picture just from their headlines even. Number one, this is from last August. Uber lost over $5 billion in one quarter, but don't worry, it gets worse. Second article from this February, from last February, I should say, Uber lost $8.5 billion in 2019, but thinks it can get profitable by the end of 2020. Um, I don't need to tell you, the listener, that 2020, not a good year to finally become profitable. If that was your plan, <laughs> didn't work. Lastly, in an article uh, that was published just in November, uh, The Verge notes that Uber lost $1.1 billion in the third quarter of last year. They lost $1.8 billion in the second quarter and $2.9 billion in the first quarter. So they're continuing to lose money, though I think they would like to point out that losses are dwindling in that pattern, whether that's a result of like more people feeling free to go out amid the pandemic, who can say, but um, in theory, that's a positive trend for them, but it's still not above water that's right um and and that's the thing these firms uh uber lyft DoorDash, what have you all of these guys what they've been what they've been good at is getting people to shovel millions and millions and billions of dollars into the enterprise with the hope of one day seeing a profit and in the meantime they have uh muscled out the traditional the the traditional businesses to create you know to disrupt uh those industries and uh make themselves in the case of uber and lyft mostly a duopoly in the case of other uh companies you know it, it there might be a three or four at most but they are companies that are designed around as you said ryan this algorithm that no one it's proprietary we're never going to see it um and this app, which is the perfect accessory if you are an evil company, because, you know, the, the American customer, as we have seen during this pandemic, uh, there is no more American act than being a customer. Customering <laughs> is what we really do in this country well. And, we love consuming. Uh, you know, consumption, big, uh, big thing. And uh this year, you know, consumption uh, made a big comeback too for some people, unfortunately. But these apps are obviously marketed to make things easy because I mean, I so I'm not originally from the Rochester area, and when I came up here, um, I still had to get taxis everywhere, you know. And 
it was usually fairly easy, but still it's a phone call and you get on the horn to a dispatcher and you have to tell them where you're going and blah, blah. You have to talk to a real life person. And since that apparently has become a problem for a lot of people, um, now it's, you know, you press a couple buttons and this thing tells you all the way when your car will get there and you get in and it takes you to a place and blah, blah. And everything is handled, uh, fairly hands off you know the money changes hands through the app the driver gets the job through the app at no point is there um a real conversation except during the thing uh during the actual uh gig so to speak so you end up with these very customer friendly experiences that sanitize a lot of the more annoying things about the industries that they're replacing and i mean no customer is going to pass that up Uh, given the choice. So it's not surprising at all that these companies make, that these companies have been able to get people to just shovel money at them, no matter what, because they do present an ease of use alternative that uh, for a lot of people is very preferable, and in some cases may even be necessary. Now, when you talk about coming up to Rochester, that would have been only like 10, 12 years ago. How long now? Uh, That's correct. Yep. And I probably took taxis. uh, Probably the most recent one I took was uh, 2013, 14. Right. Well, my point in saying that is not just to say that you're new to the area, but to say that the gig economy as a whole is really brand new in the scope of things. This is something that 10 years ago even didn't exist in any real way. Um, Obviously, it is the product and part of smartphones, everyone having one. You can't have this business model if you don't have the app to run it on, but it's a new force. And so we're still learning in some ways what the outcomes of it are. We're still learning, you know, is this really a way to do things? And I don't want to flatter them necessarily, but I think there is a point to be made that these aren't like regular companies. I think um, in many ways, the people running them would love hearing me say that they love being seen as innovative and new and different. But, you know, we talked about the losses that Uber has had, and they're one of the more successful companies here. It's almost not really the point that they make money, because I think we might be able to view them as a Trojan horse for, you know, pushing in these broader changes to not just their sectors of the economy, but the economy as a whole. And that may be why they are so flush with cash all the time as much as any hope of future profit for Uber specifically. That That is exactly why they're so flush with cash. Uh, I, I believe Naomi Klein made this point in the updated version of No Logo, um, which I had cost to read a couple of years back now. She explicitly says that a lot of these companies are propped up, even if they're constantly on the verge of bankruptcy, because whatever the product is that they're offering – you know, it's marketed to customers to make it very user friendly and very attractive. But the real benefit is that it ends up destroying whatever industry they want control over. And in the case of Uber and Lyft, you know, transportation. In the case of a lot of these other companies, it's uh, delivery of services. And so I you think they would dispute that they are in the transportation business, though, which is one of the things that makes them, uh, you might say, genius is that. They view themselves as tech companies and, and having like nothing to do with the actual product yeah. that they put out, which is taxi rides. Yeah, well, they're wrong. 
And and I think that's part of the point we need to make, that these companies have been allowed. I mean, no one who is pulling up the Lyft app on a phone thinks that they are that what they're accessing is technology. What they're looking for is a ride somewhere. You know? Um nobody who is you don't you don't go on DoorDash or Postmates or whatever the hell and go, oh my God, look at the design of this. It's so clean. What I really love about it. no, you want food. And right. ultimately that is what is at stake here. Those are the industries that they are looking uh, to destroy and replace. Uh, to be fair, it, you're absolutely right that this is how they consider themselves, but we can't let them win any of these rhetorical battles because currently they're winning all of them, the rhetorical and non-rhetorical alike. Um, but part of that is because they've been able to sell themselves as the new kids on the block and the underdogs in many cases, which is hilarious, considering that every rich person lines up to give them series, whatever the hell the latest letter is, uh, funding to just keep them, you know, uh, they, they're like uh, the the Irish hero Kukulin. They're just tying themselves to a rock and uh, until they finish off the enemy army, this is what they're constantly doing. You just something that you mentioned just then. I was reminded of uh, Genius Award honorees WeWork, who insists yes. that they're a technology company, despite the fact that their actual product is real estate. You've got this attempt to redefine everything as new and fun and innovative and disruptive purely out of a desire not to appear stayed. And the fact that we let these people be happy for even one second out of their lives. Um, should be an indictment of this country, to be honest. I think really there's an obfuscation that is purposeful on the part of these companies about basically everything that they do. They obfuscate what they really put out. They obfuscate the rule between drivers and their bosses. They obfuscate the relation between customers and the company. Um, everything is sort of hidden behind a layer or two of ambiguous technology or rhetoric, as you pointed out. They're even able to obfuscate losses with that rhetoric. Um, there's a quote in this Verge article from um, Dara Khosrow-Shahi, Uber CEO. Um, he's speaking on an earnings call. Quote, he called the company's chronic lack of profitability a meme that's out there. I see. <laughs> like I think the numbers don't even matter. It's just, you know, the discourse and the logic tricks you can pull off of it. Did he just did did he just kill memes as a thing? <laughs> I don't it's, think that's what he did. Um that uh I yes. And I should also mention, by the way. Aside from obfuscating losses, the other thing you can do, which um, it is entirely possible that you uh, mentioned this in what you just said, um, if you are a tech company, you are also avoiding because, because let's face it, state legislatures are mostly made up even now of uh, older people who you know tend to be, um, and even if they're not, quite frankly, they don't tend to be what you would call tech savvy. They've focused on, you know, uh, other things, basically, if they're getting into state legislatures. And so they don't tend to understand how you regulate tech companies. And therefore, defining yourself as a tech company as opposed to a, you know, a company that provides transportation or a company that provides um, 
food service or what have you also just probably enables you to skirt almost any restriction or regulation on how you operate. Yeah, that's um, one of the many tactics they've used to avoid any real uh, pushback against the things they've done. Pushback is the wrong word, but any real um, consequences in some ways, any regulation. And that's something that we're going to talk about in our next segment after this break. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined by Noah. Still hi, y'all. We spent the first segment talking about the gig economy, giving like a broad overview of what that term means, what it entails. And now in this second segment, I want to spend some time looking at the practical effects of having a gig economy like this, having these companies in our ecosystem. Um, Because I think in just the decade that they've been around, they've shown themselves to be for lack of a better metaphor, bad neighbors in a way, they, the disruption that they promise has not just been to uh, stodgy old industries, but it has in a real way been to people and cities and anybody who stands in the way of their eventual long-term domination of these industries. And one clear example of the battles that have taken place in this process happened in Austin in 2016. Um, the city of Austin effectively, they didn't ban Uber and Lyft, but they made certain requirements of those companies that they, uh, for example, fingerprint their employees and do more stringent background checks on them after some issues with the company's handling of uh, sexual harassment and assault by their drivers. And Uber and Lyft took their ball and went home. They decided Rather than submit to this law, they would simply not operate in the city of Austin. Um, And that's in many ways been a model for what they've threatened towards other laws since then. Yes. In the case of Austin, of course, Uber and Lyft, what they – well, they didn't just refuse to operate in the city of Austin. But then the other thing that they did is they lobbied the state of Texas to move – authority over ride sharing apps like Uber and Lyft from the municipal level to the state level so that Austin no longer had any power over them. And uh, of course, uh, given that the Texas state legislature is what it is, and Texas has the governor that it has in Greg Abbott, that was, uh, I mean, they spent a ton of money doing it, but I can't imagine that it was an uphill battle for them to do that. And they they got their wish. This is one way in which I will say that these companies do represent, I think, a slightly different – and again, not to flatter them, but they do represent a slightly different mindset than the stuff that's come before because uh, this is how tech increasingly operates in everything. Uh, Silicon Valley, whether it's in uh, disrupting traditional industries by offering uh, gig economy versions of them – or um, getting into things like healthcare 
or uh, you know, providing uh, some weird mutant version of international aid or whatever. The thing that offends them the most is telling them that you can't do that. Newly minted richest man in the world, Elon Musk, is a perfect example of this. They're all like that. The big impulse behind them is uh, they don't like to be told uh, how to play with their toys. And the moment you do that, as you pointed out, they will find somebody else to bully or bribe or simply just kind of, you know, hand legislation to and uh, see what they can do. Uh, Here it, it says that when New York just tried, New York City, that is, just tried to sort of reduce congestion that Uber and Lyft rides were causing, they replied by, and I love that this always happens to this man. Uh, but they they launched a feature in the Uber app called the Blasio View, that showed oh, no. extremely long wait times, uh, because that that would apparently become a reality. I love that every time Bill De Blasio tries to do something that is like arguably the right thing, he gets immediately dunked on uh, by by whatever the enemy is. He's just eminently owned all the time. It's bad for the city, but it's tremendous content. Thank you. Darren Rummel. But it is it is pretty disturbing, the ease with which they've been able to do this every time that it comes up. Uh, it doesn't matter what size the locality is. It doesn't matter how much uh, popular support there is behind the regulation, whatever it is. Uh, they will always find money. They will always find friendly legislators. And I mean, of course, they have the money. People keep shoveling it into the company. Um, and they'll always find friendly legislators because there will always be people who are like, oh, you're a business and you want fewer regulations? Sign me the heck up. I will, in fact, subscribe to your newsletter um, in it, every place you go in this country. Um, and certainly, as we talked about in the first segment, these companies market themselves so heavily on things like ease of use and a variety of options and uh, individual customer service experiences that, uh, you know, part of that becomes the fact that they can point to a, a customer base that exists, that is there. You can't uh, imagine that away. And uh, they've been very successful at getting cities and towns and states to cooperate with that. Mm-hmm. I- and, and you're right about that. Even in Austin, a city where voters decided to enact that law that would effectively make them leave town, those same people wanted to ride Ubers and Lyfts and weren't satisfied with the uh, offshoots that arose in the interim while they were gone for about a year before, as we discussed earlier, Texas's legislature uh, let them back in, so to speak. And you're right to point out the attitude of entitlement, which I think is what it is among these companies. It's, I don't want to say it's unique among companies, but it feels on a different scale than perhaps we've seen from industries in the past who at some level recognize that they weren't in charge of everything. With Uber and Lyft and all of these gig economy companies, there's been a sense that if the rules aren't the way we want them now, we can just change them. And so far, they've kind of been proven right on that. This article in Vox notes that after the experience in Texas, the uh, quote, it set a national precedent. There are now more than 40 similar statewide, statewide laws that take power away from municipal lawmakers and protect the ride-hailing industry, making it easier for 
the companies to establish themselves all over the country and standardize their operations. Yes. You know, every tech company has this thing where they just want to be the singularity. And it doesn't matter if what they do is just like, it doesn't matter if all they do is like make drills. Every single one of them, every single Silicon Valley firm seems to want to run the entire world. And the real disruption that the the real innovation isn't anything that they're doing because, I mean, I've traveled, I've been to other countries where, guess what? There are Uber and Lyft-like apps for actual unionized taxi drivers. Those places exist. That thing is doable. But the real disruption, the real new thing that they've introduced is just as you said, this idea that to use a a technological metaphor, you know, if you're not getting the outcome you want, then you're just going to recode the the legislation to do it. And they have, they, they certainly have the wherewithal and they have the inclination to just barrel through all of these roadblocks. And as long as they represent the interests of a lot of rich people that don't want to ever have to call a taxi dispatcher again, um, they will always have the money on hand to be able to do that. That's pocket change to them. Um, and we're going to see just how much they've been able to deploy in the service of these things over this segment. Now, you're, you're right to point out that like the labor law uh, violations and the technology are separate things. They don't have to be a package deal. But nevertheless, they have been for the gig economy as practiced in the United States. Um, and, you know, we talked, I think a couple of years ago now about, um, DoorDash and these companies that effectively do delivery, though, once again, they would tell you they do technology. And one thing we had discussed at the time is that they had this policy that effectively made it so that when users tipped their DoorDash driver, it would, that money would actually go towards the company. You know, if any of it went beyond the minimum that drivers were promised. So, so what you're saying is they disrupted tips because that's not what a tip is. Right, right. They, and after backlash uh, by DoorDash drivers who they called dashers, but we do not have to. Um, I think you made that same joke the last time, uh, which is good <laughs> because I refuse to call them like reindeer, which is what that is. Right. Um, even in changing that um, the way that their pay was calculated, they found a way to uh, squeeze drivers because they implemented a system in which tips now go to the drivers, but also uh, got rid of the guaranteed minimum that they had expected before. This is not a decision they had to make, but it is one that DoorDash did make. And there's an article on Gizmodo headline, DoorDash is proof of how easy it is to exploit workers when their boss is an algorithm from July of 2019 that talks about some of the fallout from that decision and how drivers were getting mad at each other in response to it because um, some viewed the criticism of the previous policy as having led to this decision that screwed them in new ways. And what the article uh, lays out is that very little of the criticism was being directed towards DoorDash itself and the people responsible for the algorithm that dictated their pay and the weird routes they'd have to run and everything about their job in ways that 
they had no power over. Yes, it was. Uh, quite frankly, that article was just really sad to read a lot of the time. And it's not that I'm unfamiliar with the fact that when people, when management makes decisions like these, a lot of employees, their first instinct will be to turn on each other instead of the company. I do have to take a slight issue with the article in that it says, you know, one of the reasons uh, that workers were doing this is because they're, they effectively work for an algorithm. You know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Tony Shu and all of these other people who are in charge of at DoorDash, they don't need to be there. A giant computer could run the entire company. They and the fact that they collect these massive paychecks and, and the profits that they do to the extent that they do is more indictment of how BS this entire system is. But what I will say is that, you know, I don't know uh i i don't get to talk to a lot of people who work for one of these algorithmic companies but i do get to talk to a lot of people who work for perfectly traditional companies run by people who are flesh and blood and um they have the same problem and it's just because we and this week you know we've had 15 dollar minimum wage discourse again so we've seen that too but there is this reluctance on the part of a lot of people in this country and a lot of workers in this country to blame the boss, to blame management for the decisions that they make. And managers know this. And that's why you can bet anything you want, really. Anytime management gives you anything or anytime, especially anytime you force management to reverse a terrible decision, an evil decision, you can bet that they will find a new way to screw you because they know it will generate this response. One of the reasons that we really need to start encouraging and and enforcing solidarity among workers um, is that otherwise this is how they pick you off and they do it knowingly. They do. They plan these things. At, I mean, I'm not saying they planned having to reverse the policy, but they knew that if they had to do it, they would find some other way to keep workers at each other's throats and to make sure that all of the blame went to other. I almost said it. Other drivers and not and not the people who actually made the decision. And and that will be true regardless of whether you work for uh, again a giant computer sitting somewhere or you know a, a real person who is clearly making that decision yeah and i think you're right to point out that this is a tactic that bosses everywhere implement it's not unique to the gig economy i think there are barriers posed by the nature of gig work um and by the obfuscation that i mentioned earlier about who actually makes these decisions and you know how the algorithm actually works um, one obstacle to solidarity is that for people working in the gig economy, there's not like a workplace where they go and they're alongside fellow employees. There's their car and maybe they have a forum on the internet somewhere where they can talk to fellow workers, but they don't have any real way of building a connection unless they're going out of their way for it. And that proves to be an obstacle if you're trying to uh, bring about collective action. It's something that can be overcome. And we've seen that in instances over the last few years that uh, gig employee, gig economy workers have banded together in ways big and small to 
uh, force changes or at least call for changes, but it nevertheless means it's going to be harder for them than it will be for somebody working on an assembly line. Uh, you you make a very good point, especially as we know that in this past year, I mean, physical and social isolation has been such a driver of a lot of uh, the ways that people have responded to the last few months and a lot of the arguments that have been happening, be it online or be it in real life. Um, but also, more importantly, this probably explains why WeWork had the worst time of any of these, because they did have a physical space. So you did have places to complain to other people. <laughs> Yeah. Um, And and it's a point you've made in the uh, past that when there are places for employees to socialize, management um, often has an eye on those. They and they are quick to take them away if they fear that those places are becoming venues, not just for socialization, but organization. Yes, uh, that I mean, that's a given. That's got to be like rule number one in the uh, how to be a boss handbook which I assume is a thing they hand out to all of them. Um, rest assured, if like DoorDash could, they would be taking down the DoorDash subreddit or wherever it is that these workers are um, commiserating. There's got um, to be a cease and desist letter out there somewhere. I want to see it. Um, lastly, in this segment, I we want to bring things closer to the present day. Um, we talked a few months ago when it passed about Prop 22, this California ballot resolution that reclassified um, workers for Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash as this sort of third status, not quite a worker, not quite an independent contractor that denies them the benefits that they had previously been afforded under California law. Um, There's an article in the American Prospect this past week uh, headline prop 22 is here and it's already worse than expected um this is again something that these companies spent 200 million dollars fighting to get prop 22 passed and and it's just the latest in this long line of examples of ways in which these companies have been able to force the changes they want even when you know california passed a law to to regulate them yeah Um, By the way, I should open this with uh, a a slight correction. Punching out a listener and uh, co-host Greg mentioned the other day to me that apparently we got something wrong when we were talking about Proposition 22. I guess the reason that the seven-eighths thing, the the supermajority, was included, which that is still infuriating, um, apparently is because you're not normally, if you don't state a requirement, uh, the proposition can't be legislated out of existence. So uh, apparently that was a way for these companies to pretend that they were taking democracy seriously. Um, but here we are, right? In, mm-hmm. at, at any rate, it, Proposition 22 was one of those examples. It just had all the greatest things about that we've been talking about, um, about these companies. It had the obfuscation. It had the... Uh, So it had the obfuscation because they pretended that it was to help Uber and Lyft drivers and other gig workers. It had the worker abuse because workers were bamboozled and hoodwinked and hornswoggled and a lot of other great words into supporting a proposition that was actually going to make their lives worse. It had the uh, Silicon Valley uh, uh, sousson of 21st century evil 
in that you know they they shoveled these massive amounts of other people's money into the maw of the legislature and uh it had that perfect moment where uh one of these few victories that that have been won at you know no insignificant cost uh just got snatched away by some other channel and uh so once again they were able to just you know we couldn't win it this way so we'll just try this other way and now i think uh an article that i am sure you're about to tell us all about uh says that uh, these people the 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 workers who are fighting this because uh, they are in an example of what you just said uniting to to fight this thing that they're going to have to go through the courts so they're going to have to try yet another channel to see if they can overcome that yeah um just to lay out what exactly Prop 22 does, this article um, provides a succinct explanation. Quote, no eligibility for state unemployment insurance, no guaranteed state minimum wage, stripped down worker protections, no overtime pay, no sick leave, no workplace discrimination protection, and no right to collectively bargain. To offset these obvious drawbacks, the ballot measure promised gig workers an hourly wage at at least 120% of the local minimum while actually driving, though a UC Berkeley Labor Center study estimates that the effective average wage under Prop 22 would be as low as $5.64 an hour, uh, $0.30 reimbursement per engaged mile, lower than the IRS's estimated $0.58 per mile cost of owning and operating a vehicle, and a healthcare stipend for those who hit high weekly hours threshold. The article goes on to explain that the, quote, healthcare stipends provided under the new Prop 22 devised benefits program are proving to be a pittance. Uber has often no more than $400 a month towards health insurance for drivers who hit maximum hour standards, a small percentage of the overall cost. It So, yeah. No, it you, it rules that within two months of the thing passing, even the stuff they committed to doing so that it would pass, they just are blatantly saying, yeah, we lied about that, too. It's fine. And I think the thing that makes the gig economy especially insidious and scary if you care about labor law and uh, workers rights is that they were they had the money to spend to get this passed by voters in California not a place known for anti-labor sentiment. You know, we talked a bit last week about sort of the delusions people have been led to believe by social media. I think advertising is powerful. When you have $200 million to throw around, you can pretty quickly change people's opinions on any topic you want. And the topic these people want is labor law. And they won't be satisfied with California. This is not going to stop there. Uh, that's right. And I, I think I would actually quibble slightly. The topic they want is lack of labor law. Uh, yes. But th- that's the thing. So I grew up around advertising and public relations people. And I remember from very, very young, uh, you know, people I knew and saw often uh, saying, uh, just yelling at commercials and stuff like that, you know, picking them apart, uh, bringing up, uh, they're not telling you this because X or Y or Z or what have you. And it was pretty, it was pretty incredible to realize how many people just don't bother with that part. And more importantly, the reason why more people don't bother with that part, because 
so for example, in the case of Austin, right, um, the Uber and Lyft leaving the city gave rise to a small, and I remember this because I, I remember uh, uh, following that case a little bit, and I remember hearing about, oh, they, they got rid of uh, Uber and Lyft uh, or Uber and Lyft left, and these other companies are sort of stepping in to fill the gap. And how cool is it that there might be competition in the ride-sharing sector? But you know, when you're a smaller company and you don't have billions of dollars in funding, it might be a little bit harder for you to develop a really user-friendly system, or it might be really hard for you. It might be hard for you to sustain millions of dollars in losses for years at a time. There you go. Or it might just, like, honestly, even if you're being smart about growing the business and whatnot in the ways that, you know, such people are supposed to be, um, it might still just be difficult because people honestly kind of get used to a default experience. Um, and so the moment Uber and Lyft came back, you know, people fled right back to them. And if, again, Austin, you know, it, it, it is supposed to be this capital of lefty politics in Texas. And even they sort of fell under the sway. And I think we just need to recognize that some of this needs to come from the fact that um, we have to be... I mean, I hate to say this because it is somewhat an individualistic argument, but we do have to have some kind of ethics around this stuff. When we see a proposition like this, when we see advertising like this as um, people who are going to vote, as people who are going to consume, as people who are going to um, work and be around other people, we have to have some level of understanding that these companies are going to do this stuff. And if we do care about workers' rights and labor laws, I, I mean, I don't really think that a lot of people who were informed about Proposition 22 were gonna uh, were were hoodwinked into voting for it. My guess is that that's mostly people who don't pay attention to that. But I would really hope that we learn from those mistakes because they're not gonna stop doing this, and we can't keep just um, giving them opportunities to take things away because it doesn't stop at just the workers that those companies make suffer directly. Yeah. Um, there, there was, it was pointed out in that article in the American prospect that uh, what's, what's the company's name? Donaldson's uh, Albertson's, but I like Albertson, that you went sorry. to Donald. <laughs> Who could say why that is? Um, they have now since um, decided that they will be do doing their deliveries through DoorDash and through Uber Eats now that Prop 22 is in place and ensures that it can be done cheaper than their previous way of doing things, um, as except for the unionized drivers who cannot be fired due to labor law. I think that sort of wraps up this segment about what the gig economy has done in practice. Um, when we come back, we'll sort of wrap up this episode by talking about some of the reasons they've been able to be so successful beyond just the gobs of cash that they have backing them. You're listening to Punching Out on Wayo 104.3. You can subscribe to the show or listen to past episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and other podcast apps. We are also on Facebook and Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Now back to the show. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Hey, all. 
We spent the first two segments of this episode talking about the gig economy. Um, you know, first segment talking about what it is exactly, um, what sets it apart from everything else. Um, we talked a bit about sort of its self-stated commitment to disrupt things. And in the second segment, we talked about what disruption actually means, which is disruption to workers' ability to uh, make a meaningful wage, disruption to communities hoping to uh, govern themselves. Now, longtime listeners of Punching Out will know that the third segment is often where we try to put a positive spin on things. It's where we try to uh, look towards the future and say, how can we fix this? This week, we're going to try to do that, but it feels like a more difficult task, doesn't it, Noah? Yeah. Um, as we talked in the last, as we talked about in the last segment, these companies, uh, again, I just, I cannot reiterate how infuriating it is that one of the other things they've disrupted is the like business. They've disrupted the fact that you have to make a profit to stay in business. Um, right. Because no matter what they do, people just shovel money at them because they know that that money is going to be put towards the ends of the billionaire class, the capitalist class, which is, you know, reducing labor regulations, allowing other companies to do what Albertsons did and, and fire, reduce labor costs, pardon me, and, and so on. And so it's... <laughs> When you look at that and you look at it and you see a company that can afford to spend two hundred million dollars fighting uh uh fighting for a ballot measure to make life worse for people and have that ballot measure win fifty eight forty two it does feel kind of uh uh difficult to get um to how do you get the positive handle on that one yeah and one of the things that's especially frustrating about Prop 22 is that, in a sense, it is democracy at work. You know, they got not just like lawmakers to side with them. They got an entire vote from California, the largest state in the country and one of the most progressive states. And so efforts to undo that look like they are, in a sense, anti-democratic. They are being led from the top down or through the courts, which normally we might say is bad. but at some point you have to say that these outcomes are there's there are problems with them even if they are ostensibly what the public thinks they want yes um a lot of what the capital d discourse has focused on in the past couple of weeks god only knows why is whether uh you know where where the limit of a tactical argument is at what point does something become bad because the tactic is bad versus because the outcome is bad and I think increasingly, we really need to start differentiating when something is bad for the working class, when something is bad for the people who already don't own the means of production, who are already being put out into the night by companies like Uber and Lyft and DoorDash and whatnot, because why should I continue to mention them? I'm just giving them free advertising. Um, but we need to differentiate between things that Yes, I suppose go through the democratic process, but they end up being terrible for people who really need so much more than that uh, from their fellow citizens, many of whom were convinced by a massive ad buy. I mean, uh, you know, that's also part of it, too. We have to consider the fact that we live in a democracy that is more distorted 
and um, overmanaged, I guess, in in ways that a lot of other countries don't have to deal with. And I think that's part of it too, that the level to which we allow corporations like these to have influence on the democratic process from the get-go is, uh, well, quite frankly, increasingly looks unhinged. It, it in itself becomes undemocratic. If you've been involved in the discourse over the last four years, you might have heard this term uh, neoliberalism, and often it has been poorly ascribed, poorly labeled, poorly used. But I think one coherent definition of it, at least one that makes sense to me, came from a review in uh, Boston Review of a book called Globalist, The End of Empire and the Birth of Neoliberalism, in which the case is made by the author J.W. Mason and the author of the book, Quinn Slobodian, that effectively neoliberalism is a project to put the economy outside of democratic control. It puts the market as something that is sacred and protected from the influence of meddlers in democracy. And naturally, that allows policies that couldn't get popular support to uh, nevertheless flourish and become the law of the land, even in ostensible democracies. It means you know deregulation and privatization, even when opposed by the public, become seen as a necessity because it's a response to global trends, you know, or a trade deal that's happened, you know, somewhere else. And effectively, Prop Twenty Two feels in many ways like that. It feels like the gig economy setting itself apart from any sort of democratic control or regulation. And that is a really scary process if it is allowed to continue across the country, which again, they're going to try. They are. And that's not just us saying that. They are explicitly saying that. In the uh, weeks after Prop 22 passed, one person said, one person was very excited about the fact that you know Prop 22 was passing and that this was the model they would use in every other state. So they and and the thing about this is that most other states haven't even passed because California at least had AB5. It had tried to pass a law that you know curbed some of these labor abuses. But apparently Uber and Lyft are not going to wait for other states to um try and fix these things. They they're going to try to preemptively uh, get their own sort of idea of what a worker is uh, for their company, though, because they're special, because they're tech companies, uh, enshrine that into law. And the man who said that, uh, if I remember correctly, was Anthony Fox, who used to be the Secretary of Transportation under one President Barack Obama. And it might surprise people to learn that you've got a Democratic politician, because he was Mayor Char- uh, Charlotte before then, making a statement like that on behalf of a ride-sharing company. And that's because that's where he works now. Yeah, one obstacle towards getting any um, real regulation uh, of these companies, at least, you know, through a legislative process, is that, you know, the Democratic Party, which ostensibly would be the party fighting for workers um, on the side of the labor movement in this country, you know, You can quibble with how they've done that over the last 50 years, but ostensibly, they're the more pro-worker of the two parties. They have some deep ties to Silicon Valley and the money provided by 
Silicon Valley companies. Um, it's been pointed out that Kamal Harris's brother-in-law is uh, a high-ranking executive with Uber. Um, He's are... literally, he, I believe, is now their general counsel. Yeah. So, you know, you know the person who's going to defend this when it goes to court. There are sort of conflicts of interest, we can say, between for a party that on one hand has the support from unions that rank and file unions um, across the country, and on the other has become financially reliant on money from Silicon Valley. And that's going to be a, a huge problem for the incoming administration. And while I don't want to personalize this too much, another couple things I'll mention is that you also had uh, one of uh, one of Barack Obama's campaign managers, David Plouffe, went to work at Uber and sort of laid the groundwork for a lot of what is uh, happening in the last few years. And um, from this article you mentioned in uh, the American Prospect, the the framework for Proposition 22 was co-authored by an Obama administration official. And you've got an incoming administration that in many ways has promised that they're going to be Obama 2 electric boogaloo because we live – because since now every year takes centuries to live through, we now officially have nostalgia for a thing that was four years ago. And as a result, you've got this desire for Joe Biden to come in and restore – the soul of America. And people don't remember that in a lot of ways, the soul of America was not on the side of the working class then. And it is certainly not going to be if the Democratic Party continues to rely on uh, money from these tech companies. Like Marty Walsh is not going to be, because that, if you don't know, current mayor of Boston, incoming labor secretary, He's not going to be threatening major action against Uber and Lyft when those are run by friends of the administration. The you know the National Labor Relations Board is not going to take a swing at this one. Nobody's going to be making a big deal about uh, all of these uh, – what is it? Uber and Lyft forced all of their workers to sign uh, – sorry, no. That was the Albertsons company. The, uh, everybody's making people sign our favorite thing in the world, forced arbitration clauses. So you've got – all of these abuses taking place and you have the more pro-worker party in the country has effectively devoid itself of the power to stop them from happening preemptively. They've already by putting the by by letting these people get in these positions of power um, by not even pushing back from a public relations standpoint. It, the battle seems over before it began, at least politically speaking. Yeah, it's effectively what you're describing is we have a situation which this industry has incredible sums of money behind it and it has easy access to the pocketbooks of the people who would ostensibly be able to put a check on them and that sounds bad admittedly but i would also say that that's not particularly new in this country you know this has been a state of affairs before in the united states before you know the new deal and uh the 1930s the right to collectively bargain was not in american labor law labor law was limited to like child labor acts there were steep hills that had to be climbed then just as there are now and i think if we can take any hope from this discussion it's the idea that hopefully some sort of 
organization, some sort of effort can be made to fight back against this, even when the odds seem so long. Right. It looks scary because these companies, as we've mentioned, they they can fire on every cylinder. If you beat them in the legislature, they can go to the courts. If you try to enshrine it through any kind of judicial decision, they'll try to get they'll they'll go up to the next level, right? They mm-hmm. they always have somebody that they can put in their pocket, is what I'm trying to say. Or somebody that they can push uh into making the quote the the decision that they want and we don't. And again, as you're saying, Ryan, that's not a situation unfamiliar or it shouldn't be a situation unfamiliar to the labor movement in this country. And the thing is you don't beat uh, a power asymmetry like that. You don't beat that in uh, the legislature, you don't beat that in the courts, you beat it in the streets. Uh, to to go back very briefly to that prospect article, it mentions, you know, re- reversing the trend of, you know, now traditional firms also getting in on this business and seeing gig workers unionized in accordance with Biden's campaign trail commitments. You heard it here first, folks. Uh, may well require massive 1930s-style activism along the lines of the Flint sit-down strike that led to the recognition of the United Auto Workers. Otherwise, Silicon Valley will simply be rewriting 21st century American labor law on its own, and dear God, we so don't want that. And we've talked about, every time we bring it up on this show, that so much of that labor activism was illegal Mm -hmm. and was not permitted, and it just didn't matter because ultimately... In this case, I guess, somebody has to drive the car. Yeah. And and they're trying to change that, we should yeah. know. Yes. And they're trying – and until they figure out why these cars keep murdering people and uh, how that algorithm works, by the way, that's another one that we don't have time to get into. Uh, until they manage to figure that out, that might be the only uh, recourse we have. Take advantage of the fact that somebody's somebody still has to do it. That's a bleak note to end on, but uh, that's all we've got for this week. I'm Ryan. I was Noah. This is Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Leo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.